Welcome to Community in Arabic, a podcast show sponsored by Lipton Yellow Label. We'll be chatting with successful Arabs in the U.S. and Canada and learning about their journey and how they positively impact their community. We are your hosts, Malik Abdul-Samad and Anwar Gibran. Welcome to a new episode of Community in Arabic. We're really excited to be talking to Rania Sikka. Rania is um, an, an immigrant, first-generation immigrant from Syria. Um, she's a business leader with QuickBooks and the founder of Jusur. Rania, thank you very much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat more with you guys. Great. Uh, so, Rania, uh, growing up in an immigrant family, uh, would you uh, like to share uh, your experience uh, uh, coming from an immigrant family from, from Syria and uh, how is it like? Absolutely. Um, my parents both immigrated to the U.S. Um, they'd gotten married and, and moved out here. My dad's a doctor and so he came for his residency. And so my siblings and I, all four of us, were born in the U.S., and so it was, it's truly a beautiful thing to grow up as part of an immigrant family in this country. Um, and often I reflect back on how lucky America is to have so many fa immigrant, immigrant families that make up the social fabric of the United States. Uh, you know, there's just, um, it, it blends together so many different social values um, when you bring in people of different cultures into this country. Um, the conversations we used to have around the dinner table, uh, you know, just reminding us of the importance and value of hard work and the importance of family. Um, you know, the, all of these things, immigrant families tend to come in with really strong family ties and family connections. And that was so important for us. That, that value then gets brought back to the U.S. where, um, where um, you know, immigrant families will bring some of that thinking um, back to communities in the U.S. So um, it, it just is a very special thing um, to have these immigrant families make up the U.S. Um, but for example, we used to spend our summers in Damascus. And so we'd go oh, every nice. summer to Damascus. And it, it made up a huge part of who I am and my identity because I got to experience what it was like to be in the United States and all the privileges of growing up in the United States in this amazing country. And then to go back and see the amazing elements of a Middle Eastern family, but also to recognize the differences that I was afforded growing up here. So what I saw that was beautiful there was, as I was talking about the connectivity of the family, every, mm -hmm. every evening, um, you know, my dad's family, which you guys will think of very much having, I'm sure grown up in Syria, but um, you know, in his family, the entire building was owned by my grandfather who gave each of their sons, a, 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 I see you guys smiling, a, a, a unit. And then my mom's family was literally down the street. And so as kids, I mean, that was amazing where you'd literally knock on every door of an apartment building and, or the door would open as you went down the stairs and an uncle would hand you a pear or a peach and then you'd run over to your grandparents' house. And so that beauty of the family at the core where every evening the entire set of 50 grandchildren would show up at the grandmother's house to have dinner um, is just an incredible thing. And then, and then the closeness of community, you know, you walk, everybody knows every family in that area Absolutely. and you walk in the street and the neighbors know you and the neighbors, neighbors know you. And there's not that element of um, individualism. In the US, you're surprised right. if someone knocks on your door. In Syria, you're surprised if you don't get five knocks on your door during the day. And so <laughs> it's a very different life. And so different I dynamic. loved the yeah. beauty of getting to experience two very different cultures and the beauty. It also inspired me, though, as a, as a, as a, throughout my career to say, what can I do more to create opportunity? Because, um, you know, my cousins in Syria had very few opportunities compared to what I had been given in the United States. And, you know, by the time we were 16, everything in our lives was the same. But at 16, everything diverged. They ended up the first one would go to college, but the next ones wouldn't because there was no benefit of going to college. They'd start taking the father's family business and splitting it among four sons. Um, the women were getting married very early and having children because there was nothing else to do. And so 
I was seeing that my opportunities were growing and growing and growing as I got older. My dreams were like just ballooning and mushrooming and I had so much I wanted to do and my cousins were getting smaller. And so that created a lifelong passion in me to create opportunities for people and to make a difference. So I attribute so much of who I am today to being an immigrant and I see so many beautiful things that immigrant families bring back to the United States that keep it feeling so special as a country. So just some perspectives on that question. That's really amazing. And then so that experience that you had throughout and then, you know, you having more access to opportunity is what led you to want to go to Harvard, right? Um, How was that experience suddenly finding yourself in one of the best schools in the world? And then like bit by bit, you have more and more opportunity as you go. We'd love to hear about that experience. Well, I love that question because it really does bring up so much of what immigrant families go through. So my parents, um, you know, it was a shocking concept for their daughter to go away to college. And it was so hard for them to consider. And so they, you know, and they were always worried about the exposure to different um, just differences from how we from how they grew up in Syria. And so my dad used to say to me, it was hard. So he used to he used to joke and say, it would take you getting into Harvard for me letting you leave Michigan to go to university. So he set the bar high. Um, but then when I got in, I remember my parents thinking, how are we going to tell your grandfather that we're sending you away to multiple states to go to a different university? They were so worried. And then they told my grandfather and the way he reacted shocked us all. He got me a big gold um, medallion, and on it was a surah from the Quran um, that said, "Rabbi Alman, God, may you give me more, um, more knowledge or learning." And it was the most shocking thing, but it was such a beautiful moment that um, that they, you know, immigrants were so worried about sending their daughter off to a university, and then it was recognized as such a prestigious thing on the other side of the world, and there was so much pride. So anyway, that, that when I think of going to Harvard, I definitely think of. Um, the Im- some of the immigrant experience. Um, anyway, um, going to Harvard opened up so many possibilities. It was an interesting time for me too, because I came to Harvard and I was very much an Arab American. That's my identity. And be- it was because growing up, my dad had been, my dad very much, um, both of my parents were very active in civil, in, ci- in the civic environment around us and very active in the community. My, on my dad's side, he, he had founded the Arab American, he was one of the co-founders of the Arab American Medical Association, which oh, wow. eventually became the National Arab American Medical Association, but he was very active. And so um, I watched him lead and, and set that up. And we used to go to um, travel around the world with, with, with NAMA to different conferences. But I was, I was very much part of that Arab American identity. That's who I identified with. And when I got to Harvard, the community there was very much the Arab community, which was very different. I'd go to the Society of Arab Students and all the students there were, were, had come to study at Harvard from Saudi Arabia, from Lebanon, from Jordan. And my identity totally changed. I became an Arab at that point um, with American connections, but you're, I felt so connected to the Arab world and it became so part of who I am. So it's part of any university experience where you go in with one worldview because you've been, you know, in your, the, the community that your parents created for you. And of course you got at school and then you go off and you create your own world and you evolve and you, you have so many evolutions during that period about what you want to do. Um, coming out of Harvard, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I did the next thing that everybody at the time was doing. It's so different today than it was um, 20 years ago when I graduated. Shocking statement 20 years ago. <laughs> but at the time, everybody was going to become an investment banker. And so I went on to become an investment banker and because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And so many years later, I, um, you know, developed points of view on what would make me tick and what made me um, passionate. But, you know, you find at different stages of your life, you uncover more of who you are and what you want to do. But 
that was a little bit of my Harvard experience. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. Uh, combining all these uh, uh, these traits and culture, uh, growing up, and then being in a family uh, with uh, with leadership and learning uh, how to lead an organization and of course getting all the skills and knowledge from Harvard. Uh, how is it like transitioning into uh, investment banking and then uh, from, that, uh, uh, from that first job into uh, more of the tech world and, and of course uh, you started with, the, uh, with Google and then into it and then uh, would love you know to um, uh, to learn more about that transition into uh, that industry. Absolutely. I mean, I really look back at the multiple stages of my career to date, and it's very much been learning more about myself and what makes me tick. And with each role, I've gotten closer to what makes me, um, what's so close to my own identity and what's important to me. And so I went to investment banking, like I told you, it was the default thing to do. It was one of the best decisions I ever made because it was so incredibly hard. I cried so many nights where, um, you know, I wasn't good enough or I truncated decimal and the associate was just in shock that I didn't have that attention to detail or I didn't have the sources um, when I when I built my models. And so I worked so hard and I, I was very good at the end, but it took a lot. And I remember I used to cry calling my dad and saying, you know, I did so much work and I, I produced it and I was so proud. And then the associate or, you know, um, or VP I was working with told me it wasn't good enough. And he said, that's okay. It'll make you stronger. He said, that's good. And so that was my foundation. So I always give people the advice that they go should go do the hardest thing they possibly can when they're early in their career, even if they don't enjoy it, because you become, I, I now consider myself a woman of leisure. I work so many hours, I work super hard, but for me, I'm a woman of leisure because nothing phases me anymore. After, after um, McKin uh, Merrill Lynch at investment banking, I did something so different than anyone else. Everybody else was going into private equity and you know uh, hedge funds. And I decided I wanted to go to Dubai to work with McKinsey. And that was very much a whim. I had seen The Economist had run an article, a center section on the middle on, on Dubai at the time. And um, I had remembered McKinsey had done some recruiting on the Dubai office. So I went and it was the best decision I ever made. Again, early in your career, it's about exploring. It's about diversity. It's about doing things that seem interesting. You want to accumulate multiple different experiences. And so I went to McKinsey and that was awesome. I got to be the economic advisor to the Crown Prince of Bahrain through our project. And That's amazing. Project. And I got to um, work in telecom liberalization and I got to work in a mine, in an in a, um, aluminum mine, um, aluminum smelter. And so many amazing things. And so there were very, very formative years. And that's where I connected my passion, my time spent with my parents, with the economics degree I studied at an undergrad at Harvard. And I connected the dots and became lifelong passionate about economic development in the Arab world. And so if you ask me today what I want to do, my passion is to go back and help strengthen economies in the Arab world. I used to say I wanted to be the, the minister of economy in Syria. I, I think now I'd like to do something in that same realm, but probably with more influence because, you know, I really want to make a difference on the economies there. So we'll see what that looks like. But um, I, my lifelong passion happened there. And so as you as your career unfolds, you start connecting dots and figuring things out. But you need to let yourself have diverse experiences to get to those realizations. And so you need to let your mind wander a little bit. I then went back to business school at Harvard and the Kennedy School of Government, where I did a joint degree in economic development. So I started, you know, connecting all these things. And then I went back to McKinsey for a few years in Chicago. Very, very boring, but I learned to be a manager. At McKinsey <laughs> boring because I had gone from economic development um, to um, working with underwriting and insurance companies. And so you can imagine the change in mind frame. And then I went <laughs> to Google for five years, had an amazing time. But realized um, 
Google was a very big place and everything was cross-functional. And so I owned one piece of the puzzle and I wanted to build things. And as, as inspiring as the mission of Google was, it didn't talk to me. You know, I really wanted to work on economic development and creating opportunities for people like my cousins. I mean, they're my North Star because that's what those differences and divergences of experience is what motivates me. And so um, I found a role at Intuit, um, which as many of you know, is QuickBooks, which is for small business and um, TurboTax for um, consumers. And, and so um, uh, at QuickBooks, at Intuit, I have the opportunity to lead our financial services work um, and to build all the FinTech offerings. And so that's a ton of fun for me. It's very meaningful and it speaks to me both from a technology and innovation perspective. Um, you know, all the work we're doing on data science and AI to offer loans to small businesses and um, payments processing and um, small business bank accounts and cash flow forecasting. We can totally change the game for small businesses who suffer from cash flow problems. 80% of them fail because of a cash flow problem. And if we can solve it through software, we can create tremendous number of jobs and accelerate the economy in a big way here. And all of this, of course, translates into international economies over time. So I've had a great time. The world of pandemic, like now in the, in the the economy is, uh, you know, struggling and, and uh, how small businesses are struggling and having uh, a company that kind of knows exactly your, uh, your bookkeeping, but at the same time curate uh, loans and, and payments for you to kind of keep you going as a small business. Uh, would love to, uh, you know, uh, have a more idea on uh, how is that playing your uh, your leadership uh, 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 position right now at Intuit in the pandemic world and COVID? It's uh, crazy. So um, it's, it's just opened up a massive number of opportunities for us to accelerate innovation. As you guys know, small businesses are impacted in tremendous ways through all of this. And we serve the smallest of the small businesses, um, those with fewer than 10 employees. And, you know, it's been tough. Um, they're, 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 they've had to reinvent themselves overnight to take on different types of work. They've had to go from in-person to e-commerce. Um, it's, it's, our businesses have needed us more than ever. And, and they can't accept physical checks anymore. They no longer have loans available. Um, they can't go to the bank to work on transactions. And so what we've had to do, our innovation agenda has probably increased by 10x the speed of which we have to deliver. And it was already super fast. And so we are working around the clock to get small businesses the solutions that they need. It's unbelievably exciting though, because we believe, as I said before, we can change the game for them. Um, our vision on the, um, on the fintech side is to, um, to, to, to put them in complete control of their money. So small businesses today are never paid on time. It leads to not paying themselves through payroll. It leads to, um, uh, you know, not being able to accept new jobs because you don't have enough working capital to buy supplies. Uh, they end up bouncing checks because they can't keep track of all the information coming in and they never have the capital to grow. And we believe we can change all of that through the data and the ecosystem and through the ability to connect all of these from 10 tools to one tool. And so we're having a lot of fun and we're really imagining the possibilities for small business. And we're so hopeful that as we put these tools in small businesses' hands, we will give them a leg up um, in, in, the, in the work they're doing to accelerate growth. So. That's really amazing. So, you know, thinking about this and then your experience trying to build opportunity for people in the business world, uh, I can't help but not shift to, to Jusur, you know. And I remember the first time you and I met, I think it was like nine or ten years ago, I had just arrived in the U.S. 
and I was looking for, I was applying to schools, you know, completely confused. I had about the worst personal statement I could have ever written. And I was just like looking for help, you know, somebody to guide me. I'd never done anything like this. And then my cousin Rami at the time told me that you guys were studying Jasur and, you know, I heard about the idea. Um, so can you tell us a little about, you know, where did the idea of Jasur start? Um, and what was the goal for it very, very early on? And how did it evolve a little bit over time? Yeah, I mean, I think just sort of started from the days I used to visit my cousins in Damascus when I saw the opportunity gap. And I was just so motivated to change the game for young people. I remember we used to come spend summers in Damascus and my siblings used to sit, and me, we used to sit around and watch America Plus all summer long while we were waiting for the lunch we were invited to. And I just used to think there's so much potential of this human capital that we could unlock, all these young people coming. What if each of us ran a, you know, a, a, taught an English class with young people and you did knowledge exchange and imagine what this human capital exchange could be. And so I just dreamed of the potential of the expatriate community, which I thought was the biggest asset that Syria had and an incredible asset to just change the course of the game for Syria. So I had these ideas in my head. And then these, the Arab Spring happened, um, or the, the revolutions in the Arab world. And so I was in, um, I was working at McKinsey at the time, and one of my good friends um, from McKinsey, who I'd worked with extensively, picked up the phone and called me. And he said, Rania, we've got a project in Egypt. It, it was just after the, after the Egyptian government had fallen. We've got a project in Egypt. Why don't you come over and let's work on developing a strategy for them to rebuild the economy? So I, I spent two months in, in Dubai at the time, and we were working on perspectives on how Egypt could rebuild. And one of the nine strategies we had come up with was engaging the expatriate base, because the entire Arab world is the same dynamic as Syria um, does, which is so many expatriates outside versus inside. And I recognized what was possible. So this idea was in my head. Right around that time in March 2011, the Harvard Arab Alumni Association, which is the organization I had co-founded before Jasur, um, held our annual conference in Damascus. And I was the chair of that conference. So actually, the conference was March 17th, 2011, which was very much the first day of the first protests in Syria, which, which got the whole revolution going. And... Um, I was, um, in fact, we were in the crown, we were in the palace because we had the first lady being the keynote speaker. That's just a, that doesn't really tie to the story. But anyway, um, uh, so it was, you know, quite a memorable weekend as you think about it all unfolding. Anyway, um, at the time I had gotten together, there had been 300 amazing Arabs from the Arab world and many of them Syrians who came to this conference. And I met some amazing people. Among them became the future co-founders of Jasur. And we were in a taxi ride with one of the future co-founders of Jasur, um, Dania Smaid, riding back from um, Petra back to the airport in Damascus. And we were exchanging all these thoughts of the potential for Syria. She was working at MBC Arabia in um, investing and venture capital. And she was dreaming of the industries she wanted to build for Syria and Damascus. We exchanged all these thoughts about what was possible and what we could do. So that got, that was another seed. So as you found something, there are all these seeds that come into your mind of what's possible. And you just, you put, you, you keep thinking about them and your brain keeps working. And so I came back from Damascus after that conference and I had just started typing on my computer, the possibilities. I wanted to call it the Syrian network or something stupid like that. And so I type all these ideas of what it could be in my Google doc. And then I started, and then I got, and I kept thinking, ah, this is impossible. But then I kept, you know, cause when you're starting something, you keep thinking, ah, is the idea really gonna work? Is it gonna make a difference? You think of the obstacles. So you always doubt yourself as a, as, you know, a founder, whether it's private sector or nonprofits. And so then I started circulating it to some friends among them, Dania, and some became interested and they said, yes, we'd love to join this founding team. And so I got together maybe five people of these co-founders 
And they were all so incredibly diverse. So Danya said, Rania, you're crazy. That's not a good name for an organization. Let's think of something meaningful. And so we branded it. And Danya was brilliant when it came to social media. And so we had Danya and we had um, uh, Lina Zeba and we had Fadi Salim um, and we had Rami Zayat. And there was a handful of others who became the founding team. We were all so different and we shaped the organization together. And we had a, bat we had a rough idea of what the organization would stand for and what it would be. And the first thing we did is we started running programs. You don't, when you found an organization, you don't just, um, uh, you don't just, um, you know, create it and build everyone on the mission. You want to show them what it is. So the first thing we did is we worked on a seminar to help young people um, uh, find ways to, from the air, from Syria to find ways to get admitted to universities around the world. So we created a YouTube video and I don't know, we had a couple thousand views and we were so proud. Anyway, the, the, I've, I've kind of gone off in multiple directions. The mission of Jasur at the time was to connect the Syrian expatriate base from outside to those inside to help unlock development in the country. And that's why we called it Jasur or Bridges. Um, the goal of Jasur has evolved. Our mission is to, um, is to um, empower Syria's youth for a brighter tomorrow. And so we very much focus today on education, taking that incredible asset we have of Syria's youth and educating them and ensure we don't create a lost generation for Syrian youth. And we do that by tapping on the expatriate base, but also global philanthropists and people around the world who are interested. And so the mission has evolved as the situation has evolved, but um, super proud of the organization and what it's been doing. And it's uh, so lots, lots to that answer. That's great. Uh, to you, what are the most proudest moments uh, in Jesur so far? This is one of them. I mean, I see all the young people we worked with, like Malik and others. I mean, you know, tangentially, we got to work with you, Malik. But I look at all these young people who have achieved so much. And this is the vision. We wanted to create a future bench for Syria's future, this bench of talent that could come in um, and do so many things. It, bring, it really brings tears to my eyes thinking of what you guys, it really does, it's crazy. <laughs> thinking of what you guys have accomplished. I mean, I get calls from you guys all the time. Um, those of you who are in leadership programs at the top aerospace engineering world, and then those who came into Goldman Sachs's IT and the IT track, which was very prestigious, but not, but not the, the, um, the investment banking side who ended up there, who are now part of some of the Silicon Valley's hottest startups and companies that just IPO'd. And I, I hear from you guys and what you're doing. And it makes me so proud that you are my proudest moments. Of course, the program in, in Lebanon, when we go and spend time with those children who are achieving so much, but we believe in multipliers. And I see what you guys are doing. I see the programs you've done to bring younger, you've now created your own organizations where you're bringing young people to the US to study. And that is a multiplier effect. You are you are, you are becoming global leaders for your communities around you and making a name that's better, that we can be proud of for Syria. And you will change the future of our country. So these are, there's so many moments like this, but when someone, when Malik sends me a note and says, can you do this? I just am so proud to be a part of all of these things. And um, so this is one Indeed. of them. That's amazing. That, that's amazing. And there's no doubt that Jasur left. It's such an amazing impact on Absolutely. so many people I know. I mean, so many people are so grateful. Absolutely. For, for all the work that Jasur did and that you did. Uh, yeah, now you guys are all doing it too. So it's, it's um, having a big impact it's like creating opportunities via education basically so so uh, that's uh, that's uh, you know that's uh, that's amazing you're doing an amazing job there's nothing like the opportunity of dreaming and you guys have experienced it and you guys have been able to live out your dreams and i experienced it growing up and i hope every young person in syria gets to, and around the world gets to grow up with those dreams and and to go dream super big and to see some of those, or to, just to have the right to dream itself. I mean, that in itself is just so beautiful. So I hope we can create more dreams together. Absolutely. So, so Rania, with, with all this that you said, what is next for Jasur? 
um, in your vision, in your, in your wildest dreams, what's the most amazing thing that you'd love to see Jusur do down the road? Well, first of all, we're working on succession planning. So as I did with the Harvard Arab Alumni Association, you need to make sure that the next generation takes over. And so we're oh. trying to pull in, and we will do this in the next few years, the next generation of board leaders that will take the organization forward. My dream for Jasur is always that it would be an incredible institution that would live on. You know, I imagined in every um, national capital around the world, you'd have a Jasur building that would be endowed and invested. This was my dream when we started. The world has changed so much. Syria and the Arab world has changed so much in the last decade, unfortunately. And I'm, I'm an optimist, and I know all of you are to the core, and so we're all so hopeful that we'll be able to change the course. So I'll speak of my previous dreams, but there'd be, an, there'd be an institutional building in every one of these places that was deeply endowed. And similar to these impressive scholarship organizations, Chivning and all of these, we'd have a pipeline of students that we'd continue to invest in. And it would be a multiplier effect where all of the people who'd benefited from Jasur would become incredibly successful and connected and would give money back and would bring their networks to it. And so it would just keep growing and growing. And so we'd build on that initial base of the strength of Syrians outside Syria to um, change the course of the future. So that's on education. And then my dream is that many of the people who'd been helped would go back and make a big difference for the country. And so you'd start building strength in institutions, architects and um, business people and research and doctors and lawyers. And so um, Jasur could play a role in supporting economic investment. You know, in many of the countries we studied when we founded Jasur and some of our dreams for Jasur early on is you could create diaspora bonds where people would be willing to have a slightly lower rate of return to give back to their country and to invest. And so there's so much that we could do with this organization as uh, depending on how the world evolves. That's such an amazing mission. Yeah, uh, so, uh, so with all this inspirational journey, and, and all this positive impact on your uh, smaller community here, uh, the community overseas. And uh, we would love to, to get some of your, uh, you know, uh, advices or tips for, uh, 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 for Arab immigrants coming to the U.S. Or, or just starting early with their career uh, with big dreams and big, big aspirations. Uh, we'd love to hear your advice to them. One hard work. I mean, you got to get in here. You got to roll up your sleeves. You're not too good for anything. Just get in there and work hard. So that's number one. Two, I've watched these young Arab immigrants come here, all of this Jasur students in particular, and I've watched their incredible resilience. And they get hit with these really big obstacles, these huge bills, the inability to work when they're in school. How are they going to make ends meet? Income they thought they had from abroad that's not coming anymore. And I've watched every single one of them figure it out. And so it's resilience. It's it's not, you know, having people you can ask questions to, networking, um, just just digging in and making it happen. I've watched you all do it. I'm confident you'll all continue to do it. So just, just have faith and keep pushing yourself. Um, networks, build networks of people you can talk to and ask questions and tap and get advice from. And that's, that's just when you meet someone, don't be afraid. Don't be embarrassed. Go up and build a relationship. Um, you know, continue to nurture that relationship over time by sending a text or ask, sending an email or just checking in or giving your, um, um, asking for advice. And then um, diversity of experience. You know, try very different things. Open up your mind to different experiences um, that will help you think differently. That will help you think about opportunities differently than you ever have before. So those are the things I would say. Well, one last question that must be on so many people's minds as they hear your story. Where do you find the time 
to do all you do. <laughs> it's crazy. It's really hard. I've got my um. I've got two kids now. We have a seven-month-old who was born during COVID, um, and my my almost three-year-old daughter, which is she's a huge personality, so a lot of fun. Um, and then my job is super busy. I mean, it's a lot. I've got a lot going on. And um, and for example, my parents are here and all of that. Um, uh, how do you find time? When you get very efficient. Um, you know, when I, when I first got married and met my husband, um, we got married five years ago. So I had a lot of independent individual solo time in my life. I said to him, I have to find 30% efficiency in my life so I can spend time with you and give nothing up. That was my dream. And then when we had our first daughter, I looked for 30% more efficiency. But, you know, you find opportunities. You, you, you can outsource a lot of things. So, um, you know, never go to the grocery store. We've got, a, we've got a bunch of amazing people helping us. You get organized. You figure out how you can get help from people. Um, in a, in a, you, you set up, you know, my husband and I partner on a lot of things. You know, we, we cook together. We do the dishes together. We make it all happen. So there's that. And then, um, and then you do the things that are most important. So you say, you know, for example, in my board work, I like to go very deep and spend time. And so I like to do engagements like Shasur, where I really feel like I have an impact. And I'm less the kind who wants to be on multiple boards and give um, more what I'd consider superficial advice because you just don't have time. And so, um, you know, you find the things that matter most to you and you say yes to them and you learn to say no to others. But it's hard. It's a lot of juggling. But, um, but you know, you figure it out. And just expanding on this point, uh, very interesting. Just... Uh, of course, as a uh, as an Arab woman and as a uh, leader and as as a mother uh, raising a family, uh, what's your tip to to somebody uh, uh, to an Arab woman or women in general uh, that they aspire to be a leader, but they have a family at the same time and they're raising their family uh, to that detail exactly? You know, I don't think I've given up anything. I, um, I have a nanny from frankly seven in the morning to five 30. So I see my kids from five 30 to eight 30 when I put them to bed and on the weekends. And then it's such an inspiration for the kids to see you doing all of this because they get fresh thinking, they get fresh perspectives, they get motivated, their own dreams become bigger. And so I don't want to give up anything. I want to cook dinner um, because I want my children to grow up with all the same Arabic food that I grew up with. And I want them to have the healthy food. And so I'm, I'm not very good at giving up anything. Um, I want to have it all. I want to do all of these things. Um, but I think you can with the right help, with the right um, people around you. Um, you know, Arab, you know, Syrian moms. So my mom and dad are here organizing me a few times a year where they're just, you know, come, they're process engineering my whole life. And it's great. So if, as long as you've got a Syrian mom and dad backing you, like I do with my parents, um, they will help you figure out a way to make life work. They're amazing. So, um, so I, I think it's totally possible. And it's a great thing for the kids to have, you know, a mom um, uh, and a dad, but a, mo a mom and, you know, who is doing all of this um, that they can look up to in addition to their dad, who's got a, a busy career. I, I, I really love this and, and you know you said it best is find what you love, find what you value and then you'll figure out how to do it, right? That's, Absolutely. That's, that's, it gives you meaning and purpose. Jusur um, is a big part of my soul and it gives me so much meaning and purpose and sense of um, doing something that matters. Absolutely. Well, Rania, we can, we can chat forever but we're going to let you enjoy the rest of your weekend. Um, thank you very, very much for sharing your story, for being here with us today and Look forward to meeting in person after all this craziness unfolds. Look forward to it too. And thank you guys for the great conversation. I enjoyed it. Yeah, such an amazing conversation. Thanks so much, Rania. And uh, looking forward to, for more conversation in the future. Me too. Looking forward to meeting in person. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please visit our website to vote for your favorite story. And don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to our podcast.